everything's bigger in Texas, including climate change. That's why Houston is leading the energy transition. Here in H-Town, the fourth largest city in the United States, entrepreneurs from across Texas and around the world are gathering to work with titans of industry to build the technology that will reduce emissions and power a low carbon future. We sit down with those change makers and wildcatters who are solving the toughest energy challenges. With trillions of dollars on the line, we dig into how Houston will bring technology to market on a massive scale. Join us as we talk with the leaders of the energy capital of the world as they show us how the energy transition gets done. I'm Laura Cottingham, and this is the Energy Technology Podcast. And I'm Jason Etier. Let's jump in. Welcome back. Uh, we are today, I have a very special guest that I'm really excited about, Emma Connect. Did I say that correctly? Yeah. yeah. That's right. um, so, Emma, I saw for the first time on stage. She was a finalist for the Rice Business Plan uh, competition this year in May. And everybody was blown away by her. Actually, before she came on stage, this guy next to me was like, Have you seen her? Have you seen Emma? <laughs> She's a firecracker. And I was like, no. So I was like already really hyped to see their presentation. And um, they really had a top-notch uh, presentation, her and her um, co-founder, Jacob Mansfield. Yep. Um, and they were presenting Tierra Climate. And um, they you won fourth place in the Rice Businessman competition, where one of the finalists. Um, Emma has... Uh, won the Forbes 30 under 30. She's a Forbes 30 under 30 honoree. Um, her experience comes from four years on the power, as a power trader yep. with Citibank. And um, after which she worked at a battery developer as the director of market strategy and operations. Um, at the at the Rice Business Plan competition, your startup also won many other awards mm -hmm. since this is the biggest um business competition that happens at a college level. Um, so welcome, Thank Emma. You. Really excited to have you here. And perhaps you could tell, start by telling us, what do you do? Sure. Yeah. yeah, thank you for having me. This is really exciting. I'm very happy to be here. So um, yeah, I mean, I think what Tierra Climate does actually comes a little bit out of a story between, you know, my where my career has led me and also where my co-founder Jacobs has led him. And then we kind of met back up because, you know, we've known each other seven years. Um, we met uh, at Citigroup on the power trading desk right out of college, first job out of college, and kind of like went through the ringer there together um, and both landed on power desks. And then our paths diverged a bit. And then we both found like two sides of a problem that we're solving with this startup, um, mm -hmm. like over the course of our careers. So for me, it was, um, you know, trading power, working in power markets. Um, part of my job was trying to figure out how to hedge long term wind and solar deals, mm -hmm. um, which is very difficult to do with the products that trade um, liquidly on, on the exchange um, or even bilaterally. You end up with kind of this exposure because wind and solar produce in the in, a, in shapes, right? It's not like a fixed production, like a natural gas plant. And so that, that kind of led me to be like, you know, a really interesting solution to this problem that's a physical backstop is a battery, right? Because mm. then a battery can kind of charge up when you have excess production and then, and then discharge when you're short. And then you kind of like smooth that shape out. So I I left the bank and went to join a battery developer for that reason, right? Mm -hmm. I kind of saw problems like, mm, seems like batteries are going to be big to solve this problem. And then worked as a battery developer. And the problems that, you know, it's a super nascent technology, but the problems that I saw at on the battery side is, is that it's actually really just hard for them to like economically pencil out. Um, wholesale markets aren't designed to mm -hmm. pay for carbon-free energy and batteries are actually a net consumer of power. 
Um, so their their primary benefit to the grid is like power shifting. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, we we have a problem here. We need batteries to solve this other problem, but how do we get them paid? And so I was like trying to think of ways where we can kind of juice up the revenues for batteries to make them an attractive investment for mm-hmm. like low cost capital. And then the flip side of that coin, my co-founder, he went into the the private side um, from the power desk. He went into origination and started working on these power deals between um, renewable energy developers and the bank um, and basically off taking wind and solar projects and off laying that to corporate clients like Facebook, mm-hmm. Google, whoever's trying to buy renewable energy. And he saw like a host of problems in that space. Um, and I'm happy to talk about that more on this <laughs> podcast. I kind of have a whole, you know, soapbox on that. But um, it kind of led us to this point where we were like, I see problems in the power in, in batteries and he sees problems in these in renewable contracts. Can we marry those two things mm-hmm. together to create a company that um, adds a revenue stream to batteries to make them more economically attractive and solves a lot of these pain points for corporates trying to green the grid? Mm-hmm. And so that's where Tierra Climate was born. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a long winded answer. <laughs> um, and so, um, yeah, basically what Tierra Climate does is we are sourcing a new class of carbon offsets mm-hmm. from grid scale batteries to compensate batteries for their decarbonization efforts. Um, And so we can actually measure the carbon impact of a grid-scale battery Mm -hmm. on the power grid, and then we can sell those credits to corporates um, so that they can retire them against their carbon footprint and manage their carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. So that's really the marketplace that TR Climate's building. Mm -hmm. So when, for example, if the windmill isn't running and that your solar panel isn't working at nighttime, the batteries kick in and they get compensated for the energy that they're yeah so this is kind of like the Mm. fundamental like this is the thing that Mm. i always like to go back to is like why do we even need batteries Mm. what's why do we need them on the power grid what do they Mm. actually do and you're absolutely right wind and solar do not produce Mm. on demand right they produce whenever the wind's blowing or whenever the sun is shining Mm. and when they're not producing Mm. um we have to rely on dispatchable forms of electricity generation and that's historically been fossil fuels and so what batteries do is they can charge up on wind Mm. and solar power when there's excess production and then they can discharge when those fuel sources are not available and they actually displace fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And through that displacement, they're they're basically you're preventing um, fossil fuels from having to be burned, which mm-hmm. prevents carbon emissions. Mm-hmm. And so we can calculate what the carbon intensity is of the power that you're charging from mm-hmm. and then the calculate calculate the carbon intensity of the power that you're displacing. And that difference is what we call a carbon arbitrage. Mm. And that's what batteries capture. They capture price arbitrage too, and there's like a lot of nuance. And they mm. are compensated, batteries are compensated for the energy they're they're producing, but they're not compensated for the carbon content of that yeah. energy. Mm. And so that's what we are looking to do. And so the, there are companies that measure like carbon intensity for reporting purposes for mm-hmm. like, um, I guess it's, I forget which scope it is. It's either scope one or scope two emissions, right? Scope two, it's, yeah. It's, it's um, you know, the consumption mm. uh, on a business for the electricity they produce. Um, in the carbon intensity, but they have, people haven't made the leap to how am I going to use this to arbitrage a, a power a power storage source? Mm-hmm. Do you, and, and it sounds like you um, you calculate the the carbon intensity of the grid yourself. Is the reason why you decided to do that internally versus sourcing it from one of these other companies? Yeah, so that's actually a really good question. We yeah. we do we have a data partner who's mm. doing that for us. So a company called Resurity mm. um, produces a data set called a locational marginal emissions factor, mm. and they're really unique because they're actually producing this data set at a nodal level, mm. oh. meaning that instead of an emissions factor for all, the entire state of Texas, they're calculating an emissions factor at each point on the grid where 
electricity is consumed or generated. Is my house a node? Is that uh, your house would be more granular than like okay. the wholesale okay. market, but basically your neighborhood could okay. be a node, right? Okay. Um, and anywhere you see, you know, you're driving by, you see like a big power station. That's a node where a Got bunch it. of transmission lines are coming mm. together and then getting distributed mm. down mm. Um, and stepped down in voltage. So. So yeah, um, that we have a data provider, and this is like the culmination of decades of research, and you know, kind of just just like we moved from regulated power markets to deregulated uh, price discovery in the '90s, where now we have what's called the locational marginal price, mm -hmm. and the power it's kind of a demo democratized commodity where we have the price of power being established every five minutes by this um, agency in Texas. It's ERCOT, Electricity Re Reliability Council of Texas. Um, so just as that kind of was like years and years and years of like figuring out how this market should work lmes locational marginal emissions are are like in their infancy mm. and and there's been a lot of academic research trying to figure out how do we how do we measure this how do we exactly show who's like the marginal generator that's providing the next megawatt or mm. basically um the the generator that would be displaced if we injected one megawatt of renewable energy oh, okay that's how we think of it yeah. um and so there are several companies that are doing this for is one of them Rishurdi is one that's doing the nodal um and uh work and really ge being geographically specific which is super important for our application because we need to measure the impact of a battery in a specific place mm -hmm. um, as it's constrained by the transmission around it. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I think that I think that for this company to to function, you sort of need a deal maker, which mm -hmm. is like what my and Jacob's expertise is in and power trading and power markets and battery optimization. And then you need a third party data source that acts as like kind of a settlement mm -hmm. um, to avoid like a conflict of interest. So mm -hmm. that's exactly why we're using a third party um, mm -hmm. data provider. Mm -hmm. And then who's the actual buyer of the service? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, we're, we kind of had this theory that it was going to be mostly like big tech companies mm -hmm. because they, they have a history of entering into contracts uh, called power purchase agreements mm. with like wind and solar projects. And so we thought it would be like a natural evolution for mm. them to enter into contracts with batteries. So, um, you know, but we're kind of finding that we were originally positioning the company in in the power space that so we may actually need to be positioning it more as in, in the carbon markets mm. um, with like ESG teams who are purchasing carbon offsets mm. because that's our, our product is denominated in CO2 tons. Um, and so it's kind of this tension of trying to like marry power markets and carbon markets together like they're inherently they go together inherently mm. i mean we know that we're trying to decarbonize the power grid um but how you exactly do that within these massive organizations that have like a power procurement team and then they have maybe an esg team and maybe they don't talk to each other um you know like microsoft or google or facebook so that's kind of been an ongoing um mm. discovery of like who exactly is the customer but what's really interesting is we've actually gotten some interest from oil and gas, like cold mm. outreach, which mm. we were not expecting. Um, but being in Houston, I think out of the RBPC, uh, several folks reached out and were like, hey, you know, our oil and gas, um, you know, upstream uh, firm is is looking to invest in carbon capture and sequestration. But we want something to bridge us from where we are now to our CCS goals. Mm. And your offset may be a good tool to do that. That's like a little bit more effective than like a nature-based offset, like a tree mm. planting or mm. a deforestry uh, forest, forestry project. Yeah. I'm thinking of like when I was in oil and gas back in the day and the, the big trend was like electric frack, right? Mm -hmm. And you're starting to move to, um, you know, replacing all the frack spreads um, that were run by diesel with these big electric motors. 
but then they got to get them on the grid. Yeah. And that, the, where the oil fields are and where the grid is there is <laughs> there's not overlap. solar. There's no wind. <laughs> yeah. Um, and but but there was also an emergent trend of um of battery technology being deployed, and, and a lot of it was because the um you got to level out what the frack pump needs. It's mm. a there's a lot of shoulders on the on the frack loading. Mm. Um, and I could see if they need to layer that in within their own ESG reporting requirements as a larger oil and gas company. It, it helps to justify putting in some of these, um, uh, even these distributed uh, battery systems. And, and those battery systems were like one to 10 megawatts. So yeah. small, but used, they, would, they would move around with a frack spread. Yeah, interesting. Right? So that, I was like, I could see how this would, would definitely yeah, coalesce within that industry. Yeah. But also just super niche. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> in terms right? of, of the frack process. Yeah. Uh, and that's not where you, you want to build a business that scales. So yeah. That's, yeah. that's where my head was going. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I think uh, it's interesting you say that. A little yeah. anecdote about yeah. West Texas is that when I first started powertrain, there's a ton of volatility in West Texas for that exact reason. Yeah. Like this huge electrical load coming mm. from, you know, Permian development. And uh, they had to build, they ended up solving it by building a bunch of transmission lines. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's, um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, that's, that's, it's definitely like, I think the oil and gas industry is like a lot of people write it off as, uh, in terms of like their initiatives to be leaders in like climate change initiatives mm -hmm. and, um, and clean tech and stuff. But I think that, I mean, they're, they can be big movers, right? Mm. And, um, you know, if we could land a, a big oil and gas giant, I think it would, really be a signal um in the industry that like hey this this power the power grid is going to be decarbonized at some mm. point right um and and you know that's through a combination of renewable energy uh batteries and carbon capture and sequestration yeah so one of the potential customers you did not talk about was like a project developer or the, the folks deploying um a, uh, like city scale storage today mm -hmm. uh, I, I assume you've talked to those folks oh as yeah well. so since we're building a marketplace, they're the other side of the okay. of the equation. So mm -hmm. we kind of have to essentially what we're trying to do is match up buyers and sellers, mm -hmm. where the mm -hmm. sellers are these developers of grid scale batteries, and the buyers are you know the people mm -hmm. who are trying to decarbonize their business. And um, and I will say like, for a battery developer, this is like really enticing, mm -hmm. and we're getting a lot of cold inbounds from battery developers. I mean, I'm pretty well connected in the battery space just from my experience working. I key capture energy. Um, and the reason why is because like this is a thing that batteries can do and some are already doing. It's just like this big decarbonization effort, but they're not being compensated mm -hmm. for it. They're just mm -hmm. doing it for free right now. Um, and what we're trying to do is compensate them for that for that work that they're doing. And I mean, it's it, we're, we're so we're working on a white paper right now. Mm -hmm. It's actually coming out in a few weeks. Um, and trying to kind of understand the economics of storage doing carbon abatement versus doing other things on the grid, providing support services, keeping the grid frequency at 60 hertz. There's a bunch of services that a battery can provide. And, you know, if they're not getting paid to do carbon abatement, they're going to do the thing that maximizes the value for the asset. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't necessarily correspond one-to-one uh, yeah. -one with, like, pulling carbon off the grid. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing we're trying to solve for with this product is saying, hey, like, we're going to pay you for decarbonizing the power grid. And because there's now a signal, a price signal on that carbon, mm -hmm. it's going to incentivize you away from behavior that in some cases is actually mm -hmm. carbon emissive. So um, it kind of is like two birds, one stone. But the, the battery developers are very interested because it, it, it's essentially going to boost their revenues to a level that's going to like make, make batteries a more attractive investment. And that's really what we need. I mean, we need to scale batteries by like 30 to 40 X yeah. to get to, to, to <laughs> yeah. net zero by 2050. Mm. Right. Yeah. And like, 
you know, we're talking about we have like 10 gigawatts of batteries mm-hmm. and we need to get to like 400. Yeah. So so this is um, going to be an undertaking and it's certainly not going to get done exclusively through like procurement mandates from governments or regulatory bodies. It needs to happen through capital markets. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we're trying to do is is make batteries attractive enough to, you know, attract low cost investment mm-hmm. and be able to put debt on these projects and project finance them. So, so where are you now in terms of your proof of concept? What's your like big milestone that you're going for now? Yeah, we're very early still. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's a two-person company right mm. now. It's me and my co-founder, and uh, we so we've we've essentially built an optimization engine and done a lot of work on like the feasibility of this product. Uh, like, can it work? Do the economics work? What's the price that carbon has to be in mm. order to make make it work? Mm. And it's definitely more expensive than than nature based offsets, which are trading like four, five, six bucks, and ours is like a hundred bucks. But mm. then on the flip side, CCS is like five hundred mm. bucks. So there's you know there's kind of like um it's we're essentially sitting in the middle there. Um, so yeah, we're we have done a lot of work on the feasibility of it, and I think at this point we are trying to put together a deal. I mean, mm. most of the, you know, we're looking for to raise venture capital investment for this company and a lot of the VCs want to see a proof of concept. Mm. And so um, it's sort of like landing that that buyer that is willing to be on the new frontier of a product that's never that doesn't exist, right? Mm. And like doing this deal for the first time, um, finding the battery that's the best fit for that deal. Yeah. And so we're trying to cobble that together and and essentially get a deal done. That's that's where we're at right now. And our hope is that you know along the way we're gonna probably raise a friends and family round yeah. to sustain kind of a bridge round. Um, hopefully hire a couple people and uh, and bring some advisors specifically in the carbon markets on board. And then with that col- that group that collective group, we're hoping to to close our first deal by Q1 next year. Mm. So I want to play devil's advocate a little bit. Why do you need venture capital? at all because in many ways there's there's a project finance element to this um and, and if you're putting the a, a deal together um you're gonna get paid for it right yeah so what what would be the use of proceeds i guess in, in a venture financing for you sure yeah so i think this is one of those things where it's like an execution play mm-hmm. right so it's a novel product it doesn't exist today and we're creating it um but it's it's something that can be copied, right? Mm. And I think for us, it's like we want to put together like all the kindling and then light the match and we just need lighter fuel, right? Mm. Like we need lighter fluid to just like make the whole thing explode um, and grow really fast. And so Mm. I think that's why we're thinking about VC rather than, I mean, right now we're bootstrapped and we've thought about other avenues to try. I mean, we would just grow much more slowly if we tried to grow from, you know, bootstrapping it ourselves and then getting our first deal and using that revenue to like invest back into the company. It's just, it's going to take a lot longer. And like, there's a few, re- like we want to put up barriers to entry and grow fast and kind of build a moat around what we're trying to do. But we also want to do this now because climate change is like happening now. And like, yeah. I mean, we're sitting in this heat wave in Texas, like <laughs> days long, like power grid strained. And it's just like a constant reminder that like this business needs to happen sooner rather than later. And mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. VC investment is the best way to, to grow something fast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a good answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how, how far do you think your um, RB, uh, the Rice Business Plan Competition Awards are going to get you? Yeah. Um, so I think 
I think that we probably have – so before RBPC, we mm. probably had runway through the end of the year. Mm. And um, some of the RBPC awards are cash, which is great, yep. non-dilutive. Mm. Um, and we have actually have quite a bit of non-dilutive capital. Mm. We're really grateful for that. Yeah. Um, and then some of the other awards are sort of um, contingent upon a larger syndicate of investors mm. that we're putting mm. together. So mm. it's like – it's not necessarily like – we're going to write you a check and here you go. It's like, we're going to write you a check with a group of other investors. Like, I mean, investors always like to see the business yeah. de-risk. No of one course. ever, no one wants to be the first one to be like, I'm yeah. investing and it's just me, you know? So um, I think with the combination of the RBPC prizes and mm. our friends and family round, mm. angel round mm. uh, this summer, we should hopefully get runway through the end of next year. And And then, I mean, our goal is to really just like, Build up, build up proof of concept and de-risk the business such that when we do go approach institutional capital, it's like we can mm. grow mm. like hockey stick. Mm. So um, that's kind of our approach. Mm. And are you done with your MBA yet, or is it one more year? Unfortunately, not. I no. have one more year. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am doing the professional program, which is like nights and weekends. It's still like a two-year MBA and the same mm. credits, which. Rice definitely like undersells the workload when they are uh, recruiting people. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I was able to manage it so far in the first year. Um, and luckily, I will be able to get some course credit for the work that I'm doing with my startup to mm -hmm. kind of take the load off a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. on the so you are side. working full time on your startups and then yep. a BA yep. on the weekends. Yeah, <laughs> it's um, actually I just finished. Um, I just finished the semester since it's like a yeah. professional mm -hmm. program. We go all the way through. Mm. basically the end of June mm -hmm. um, and our summer is really short and uh, I like don't know what to do with all my free time now like now that I'm not in class I'm she's like, gonna work on weekends is what I'm hearing I know. Yes. it's actually yeah it's, it's kind of dangerous I mean yeah. you can really oh yeah now that I have my nights again for at least two months it's gonna be crazy <laughs> oh man so, so, so you're doing this full-time full-time yeah. yeah I quit yeah, my otherwise. job in April early April um because I, I was working full-time for the first semester of school and mm. running a trade desk and was on call a lot 24 hour you know 24 7 powers mm. 24 7 so mm. you're always dealing with some issue um and I was able to make it work you know it's just kind of a little bit of sacrifice um yeah. that but, cash flow is nice when yeah you, yeah so yeah. so tell us about that when you made that decision you're like okay now's the time I had to make this jump how did yeah. you feel it um so I, I always wanted to start mm -hmm. my own company. I always wanted to start a company in energy. And I was playing around with this other idea like for the past two years mm -hmm. around like electric vehicle, um, like vehicle to grid type trading, essentially using like um, distributed mm -hmm. vehicles as like virtual power plants, basically, which some people are looking at doing. And there's a lot of reasons why I decided not to pursue that idea. Um, but I was, have basically been talking myself into this for like two years and it took, it was a long lead up. It wasn't like all of a sudden like, oh yeah, I'm ready to quit my job. Um, but I would say a combination of factors of like talking myself into it. Rice was super helpful um, because everyone's kind of cheering you on, especially with like, you know, it's ranked one in entrepreneurship and there's a lot of resources just like, mm -hmm. hey, like you got to commit, you know, everything's going to be okay when you commit. It's like not as risky as you think. Um, so that was helpful. And then, um, you know, meeting my co-founder. Mm. Well, me meeting back up with my co-founder and and him being as committed as I was to starting a business. And then I think the last thing, you know, is, you know, I have I'm married. My husband works and it, uh, you know, he just got a new job at a bank about six months ago and kind of like 
made the whole benefits thing a little bit, health insurance thing a little bit easier to to swallow. And so like basically stepping away from my corporate job and and essentially taking a very limited salary, paying myself a little bit, um, but not a lot was was a little less risky when you have like a partner. So I'm really grateful for that for him. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, I, I can imagine it's not not an easy decision to take um, to make to make that leap. Right. But you said you you always had that entrepreneurial bug within mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. So now that you've been on it for, let's say, half a year, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. How yeah, do, how do you yeah. feel? How do you feel like what, what do you th- think is different? How's yeah. it going? Um, it's going really well. Mm. I really like it. I mm. really, really enjoy mm. working on. I mean, I feel like we're working on problems that'll, that no one's really thought about. And like the, it does feel like a new frontier and kind of a cutting edge um, I mean, storage is pretty new. And so this is like kind of a layer up on top of that. Um, but I will say like the highs are really high and the lows are really low. Mm. You know, every time we get bad news or, you know, someone responds to our deck and it's like, this is never going to work. Right. You're mm-hmm. like, oh, maybe this isn't going to work. <laughs> maybe I, do no. I need to go apply for jobs? Um, but and I think we've only really had like one or two of those setbacks where we are really scratching mm. our heads. Like, is this can we can you know, can anyone do this? Is it it, like, we think we can if it's possible, but Mm. like maybe this idea just doesn't work, right? Mm. And so that's really hard when it's just two people. And Mm. I think it's really important that like my co-founder and I are like constantly trying to hype each other up and like making sure like we're in this until Mm. there is, we hit a block where there is no path around. And like, we haven't come to that. Mm. And I really hope we don't. I think I'm pretty confident that we're, we're gonna be able to figure out the hurdles if it was easy to do, someone would have already done it. Yeah. So, um, but then on the flip side of that coin, it's like you get good news and it's just like, it's just pure <laughs> elation. You're just yeah. like, oh my gosh, this is going to work. We're going to change yeah. the world. So, um, yeah, it's, I think yeah. it's a less, it's a, it's a journey in trying to like level set mm. your emotions mm. so that you just don't go for this like roller coaster that, I mean, it can wear you out, wear you down, wear you out. It's like trying to stay more steady for me. How was the experience of being part of the RBPC and um, what benefit do you think you got from it aside from, you know, winning, um, winning cash? Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I'm sure, you know, being on that stage and getting all these investors and potential customers and people with so much expertise, there's a lot of benefit of that. So how was, was it after the competition was over? Um, You know, did you get any calls? Oh yeah. Lots of calls. Mm. Um, yeah, I think the experience of the RBPC and really like all of the pitch stuff that happens at Rice. I mean, RBPC is one, but there's mm. like the Napier Rice Launch mm-hmm. Challenge and like other competitions and like the Summer Venture Studio, which we're participating in this summer. So like a lot of stuff that mm. happens around Rice. And um, I think for me, the biggest thing is like I had always been really terrified of public speaking. Mm. Even something like this would have made me very, very nervous mm. like two two years ago. It still <laughs> makes me a little nervous, but um, – I just kind of got forced to like get in front of big crowds. And I mean, you saw the RBPC crowd was like that, like Shell Auditorium was full, Mm. like standing room only. So um, it's been really helpful to conquer that fear. And now I would say I'm like very comfortable publicly speaking and, um, you know, like really working on like how to command a room and project and be, you know, a presence. That doesn't just come naturally to me. Like I think it's learned. And I think a lot of it was through Rice Resources. 
Yeah. No, yeah. I actually like that because like the, I, I would not have known that about you because you have stage presence. <laughs> and if anyone's seen you pitch, you're like, A, you know you practice. Mm, I'm yeah. sure you practice a lot. But uh, the, uh, how did you learn to to kind of command the room? Did they have a coach um, teach you? Um, I think you kind of get feedback. So like, mm -hmm. okay. For example, at the RBPC, the first round, we had like a practice round and it was in a smaller room, I don't know, mm -hmm. 15, 20 people. And the biggest feedback was like, Emma's mumbling and Emma <laughs> is not loud enough. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> that was two days before we made the finals and I pitched in that in Shell. Wow. So uh, that's like instantaneous feedback. I was mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna talk until it feels like I'm yelling. And then when someone tells me it's too loud, then that's when I'll stop. And it really is like, it does feel very, very loud to me when I'm mm. having to project like that. I feel like I'm screaming at people, but that's kind of the feedback that I got. And so that's what I did and it seems to work. Um, and one thing that my co-founder and I do before we go on and like do any sort of pitch competition uh, is we say this thing, whether the weather be cold or whether the weather be hot, we're in this together, whatever the weather, whether we like it or not. <laughs> and so we cute. say that we start off, we start <laughs> off like... <laughs> I know it's kind of cheesy, but and it's like really, you know, wholesome, I guess. But we we like start off whispering that and mm. then we slowly get louder and louder. We say it a bunch of times until we're essentially like screaming it at each other in like a room. Oh, yeah, one of those I little like, like rice rooms. Yeah. And um, and then you're like, OK, that's what it that's what it feels like to talk loud. Yep. Like this is what I sh this is the volume I need to be projecting mm. at. This is like the energy we need to have. And so, uh, yeah, you just pick things up like that. Also, my co-founder is in speech and debate all throughout mm -hmm. high school and college. So he's like really got all the tips and tricks. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. It's no, those we... little rituals. You got to have them. Mm, you do. They, like th those are things you remember, too. Yeah. 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 I love it. It's like, and what a great bonding experience. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I can't even imagine that two days before you were like mumbling. Yeah. And the way you ended up being on stage with like full confidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was definitely very impressive. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And it, and it's great to know because sometimes, you know, like I go to pitch competitions a lot and mm -hmm. I think Jason does too. And you're just like, what's the point of these like three minute pitches? You know, do you really get to know the company? But for someone like you who's just coming out and just being able to get that practice mm -hmm. and, you know, being able to at least check that off the list that I'm actually able to pitch. And mm -hmm. you've got, you you said you conquered that fear of public speaking. Not many mm -hmm. people can mm -hmm. say that in such a short period of time. And now you can focus on actually building something in the technical details because yeah. you're like, well, actually I can pitch. I can sell. I right. can talk on stage. <clears throat> I have conquered that fear. Mm -hmm. That's huge. Yeah. I feel like with the, like, when you're building a business, there are these like conditions you need for success, but any one thing doesn't create success. Mm -hmm. And when someone has a bad pitch, you look at that, you look at a team and you go, that person's never raising money, right? Mm. And, and and it definitely is a good filter mechanism because people can pitch and not have a business, right? Mm, they, yeah. can, they can they can have something that's undifferentiated, um, but you almost need that um, filter and, and I guess the challenge comes to finance ultimately, right? Yeah. Like you're experiencing now with the angels coming together, there might be commitments, but they don't want to take finance risk where, you know, they, they're committing to a plan. If, if you're raising a million bucks, you need all a million bucks, mm. right? right? And they don't want you to raise half and then have to scramble to figure out like, are we going to go halfway? Is it an 80-20 kind of thing? Um, and so they need the confidence that you're going to be able to get the last bit. Right. And that kind of ability to create the reality mm. distortion as it as it is um <laughs> like gives people confidence that you will get there eventually mm -hmm. but when you see a bad pitch it's like i'm not even gonna spend time because right. the idea might be so great but that person's never gonna raise the money right, and so yeah. it's not worth 
Yeah. And, right. And and I see that having yeah. I say that having seen both sides, have right. being in the pitching seat yeah. and being a judge. Um, it's uh, you see a lot of bad pitches. <laughs> yeah. Mm, so yeah. it matters. It does matter. It does. Yeah. It really does. And, um, you know, I'm fortunate that I think through Rice and through my co-founder and just like getting a lot of opportunities to, mm -hmm. to do it. I mean, you practice makes perfect. Right. Um, has really helped with that. And like like you said, it's it's now we can buckle down and focus on the business and have pretty high confidence that, you know, when we get the call, we're going to be able to deliver on the pitch. Mm -hmm. You'll so, figure it out. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So your co-founder is in Boston right now? He actually just great graduated from Harvard Business School and now he's in New York. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, his wife is doing a PhD in political science at NYU. So they're they're in New York based, uh, New York City. So we're kind of doing this bi-coastal thing. But I actually think it's a good mm -hmm. breakout because there's a lot of climate investment mm -hmm. in New York and then there's mm -hmm. a lot of energy investment in Houston and we're kind of sitting in between energy and climate. Um, Where are you re registered as a company? New York. New York. New York, yeah. But okay. we we have, you know, registered with, like we can do business in Texas mm -hmm. so um, mm -hmm. and a couple other states as well. So, so yeah, we're, we're trying to figure out what the long-term home home base is mm -hmm. um i think probably not wanting to like i know my co-founder is not wanting to stay in new york long term mm -hmm. he's from houston mm -hmm. uh went to rice undergrads mm -hmm. um okay born and raised here so yeah we're, we're figuring out honestly the i'm a really big proponent of like in-person working especially for a small team especially when mm -hmm. you're trying to like whiteboard and ideate and like bounce ideas um but with the pandemic changing a lot there's like it's hard to get people to come into the office, mm -hmm. uh, let alone move to a place. Yeah. And so as we think of hiring and like where, you know, do we want to try to hire people out of Houston and make the home base here and have it in person? Do we want to try to hire out in New York. What, what's the best probability of like getting the most amount of people in a room together? Because um, we definitely can't afford to to pay what, like if we're trying to hire someone who lives in Denver and we're mm -hmm. like, hey, we need you to move to Houston, Texas. They're gonna be like, yeah, I'm not doing it for that salary, you yep. know, or maybe yep. I'm not doing it at all because because yeah. mm -hmm. everything has changed since the pandemic. So, yeah, yeah. In terms of where your buyers and sellers would be, where you know, if you had any hypotheses on where do you think you would you should start geographically within the U.S. Yeah, so we're definitely our beachhead market is is Texas is mm -hmm. ERCOT, and that is for a few reasons. One. ERCOT has like a lot of renewable energy. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, outside of California, mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. high wind, high solar. Um, and it's also a very deregulated market, lots of transparency, data access. Um, and there's a lot of storage. Uh, there's a lot of storage in the queue. There's over a gigawatt, probably mm -hmm. close to a gig and a half at this point in already installed. And um, it's also a market where storage is, some projects are like certainly penciling and like getting done and making money. And some are not. And so there's an opportunity to kind of plug the revenue gap mm. with this product and get projects that maybe would, wouldn't have otherwise mm. been built, built because they can essentially increase their revenue stream from mm. this carbon product. So Texas is the game plan. And then in terms of like where we expand from there, I think we're, you know, obviously California is like the, the hub of storage and renewable energy and like the evolved, mm -hmm. you know, clean power grid. But there's a lot of state support in states like California and New York mm -hmm. um, for just like procuring energy storage. And we're trying to target states where there's not state support because we want to, you know, in the middle of the country where there's not going to be big initiatives for clean, renewable energy and, and energy storage. We're trying to solve that problem through capital markets because we know that there's a willingness to pay 
um, to for for folks to decarbonize businesses and decar- you know just generally reduce carbon footprint. And so that can be an investment into infrastructure where we otherwise wouldn't see it. Um, Because effectively, you know, the way wholesale markets are designed right now, it's just not enough to get Mm -hmm. storage. Anywhere where storage is getting built, with the exception of Texas over the last one and a half years, which Mm -hmm. is debatable whether or not those projects are actually making money. And, you know, we've done we've looked at the economics. Some of them are just not. Um, It just it's really hard to justify, especially with supply chains Mm. getting all messed up from Mm. the pandemic and lithium. There's just this huge demand for batteries in general across all different products, not just Mm. grid scale Mm -hmm. storage. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, lithium prices have been all over the place. So, yeah, we're we're trying to solve for for that issue of like, you know, you're going to have to overpay in order to get storage on the grid. So how do you make that happen? You either mandate it through regulatory policy or you pay batteries for something that they can provide that no one else can. And like a battery can provide you clean dispatchable power and a natural gas plant cannot. Mm-hmm. So they should be getting paid for that. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, that's the kind of the underlying thesis that we have. Mm-hmm. So so thinking about um, a thesis, uh, you know, VCs tend to invest in, in like their market thesis. Um, when you talk to the, the the VC community, like you're, you're probably, you know, you're putting together like a friends and family round. Do you find VCs are receptive to like this this market problem you've identified? Yeah, actually way more so than mm. angels. <laughs> so we are talking. So my co-founder, I'll just preface this. Mm. I'm chief technology. I do a lot of the coding and the tech stuff. My co-founder is dealing with the fundraise. So but I'm going to speak for him right now. Um, he's spoken to a lot of like seed stage mm. investors who are very interested, but the comment we always get is you're too early, you're mm. too early, mm. de-risk mm. it. And so we're like, okay, well, we need to de-risk it. So let's go get some money elsewhere. And then we'll come back to these companies that are pretty invested, I would say, in the idea. And they're like, if you can make this work, like we're in basically. Um, and then you go to the angels. And I don't know if this is just Houston or it might just be because Houston is like so heavy oil and gas. A we, lot we, of like they like cash flow. Yeah, That's what they like. That's, yeah, yeah. It's a lot of like, oh, you guys are pre-revenue. Yeah, we want no part of that. And you're like, you're an angel. We we what? How if we had pre-revenue? If we had revenue, we would be getting. We would be raising mm. seed money. Um. So I think that's been a little bit of a challenge, and also just it's a really. I mean, even throughout this podcast, I'm sure you guys are like. Mm. There's a lot of stuff that I'm saying that's so niche. It's so esoteric. Power markets are hard commodities markets Mm. to learn and so when you kind of talk to someone who's like a traditional energy person and you're like well there's all these nuanced problems that we're solving for we have to consider this 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 it kind of is just Mm. a little bit like yeah that's maybe too complicated for me Mm. and people are like i'm Mm. i'm gonna step away Mm. so i think it's finding the right investor who is who at the angel or friends and family round is like hey we believe in the team Mm. the vision makes sense and then like that's kind of how we partner Mm -hmm. Do, do you think some of the VC thinking has to change about how early they're willing to go? Because, like, you, you know, they say, okay, you need to be yeah. more mature. What does that actually mean? Yeah. Right? It, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that it actually has, even over the last, like, five years, really moved where VCs are starting to get in earlier, which is helpful. Like, I think Series A is now seed and seed mm. is now pre-seed, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're kind of, like, getting earlier entry from institutional capital. Um. But yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. There's, there's definitely, when we're, when you're building something like a marketplace, it's, I think it's hard for an institution of investor to write $2 million check when they don't see a proof that this thing can actually work. Right. Mm. So I kind of get 
where VCs are coming from when we're having these conversations. And it's certainly not. We didn't expect to like be able to go raise institutional capital like right out the gate. I mean, it's two people with an idea and like a white paper and like, mm-hmm. some conversations. Um, but I think the br- we, we maybe expected like the bridge round to be like a little bit easier to find. Not that it's I mean, we haven't formally started fundraising yet, so I'm not you know, I'm not saying like we're not going to be able to raise capital. Like mm. I think we will. But um, I think it's like the kind of conversations that we're, we're having where it's like, how do we find the right fit mm. for the stage that the company is in? Because it's the other thing, too, is it's not a company where it's like, oh, go build something in Excel and like sell it to someone for $100,000 and then like then you're de-risked. It's like we're talking about billion dollar company on one side and a hundred million dollar asset on the other. Mm. And we're talking about transacting in a market that has like high degree of like risk associated, right? Like you can't just mm. screw around in power markets. Like this is a commodity mm-hmm. that people depend on for stability, reliability. Like the grid is not something you can just go tinker around in. Like how, you know, yeah, there's a don't. lot of regulatory <laughs> stuff around that. Yeah. So it's not a business that you can just stand up like any, like another software company where it's just kind of like, oh yeah, go make a prototype and go have people start playing with it and, and tell us what you find. It's like, this is a, this is like a, it's a software company, but it's playing in an infrastructure space. Mm. And so we kind of have to move at the pace at which that happens and it's not you know oh we're you know generating revenue in two mm-hmm. months after starting the company right it takes it just takes time now um and so are you th- look uh, looking at investors outside of texas then for that yeah, yeah. for sure mm-hmm. i mean we, mm-hmm. we're casting a pretty wide net mm-hmm. um i think i think for friends and family we mm-hmm. we probably have enough like high net worth individuals in our personal networks to get us to where mm-hmm. we need to be to probably get a proof of concept. Um, and we're also applying for, you know, government grants and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, I mean, as for, in terms of like institutional capital, it's it's through my co-founders HBS network. It's mm-hmm. New York. It's Boston. It's California. I mean, we have a lot of friends that are also founders that have gone through like Y Combinator and like mm-hmm. are familiar mm-hmm. with that space. So um, yeah, kind of casting a pretty wide net. Yeah. yeah. Would you apply to like a Y Combinator or, or something? Yeah. Like that? So we did apply. Okay. We didn't get in. What did they say? Uh, they, they don't know what they're talking about. I don't actually think we got like, <laughs> I don't think we got um, like specific feedback mm, on that. Okay. It's just like a generic rejection yeah. letter. But I think most, a lot of people, it takes like two or three times mm. to apply to get in. Mm-hmm. And we we were also kind of on the fence with YC because it's like you don't want to get into an accelerator too early mm. where you can't actually use, you can't use the resources that you're going to get from it and then you just give up 7% of the, 10% yeah. of the company or whatever. Um, that doesn't really make sense. So it actually might make sense for us to more be in like their winter cohort instead of their summer sure. cohort. So we may apply again. I mean, I have a lot of friends who have gone through it and they love, they were like, yeah, it was oh, great yeah. for us. It's like rocket fuel, right? It, so when I was telling you earlier, um, like I, I miss being like uh, a younger founder because like there would be a time where I could pick up and say I would do like YCOM easily. Um, and now I'm at a point where I could not go for three months and do that mm. amount of rigor. Yeah. But I've heard mm. it's life changing. It's fun. Like it's, it's all those yeah. things. Um, so yeah, definitely would recommend to anyone because every founder I've known who've gone through it, it's, it's like changed the way they yeah. approach things. And a lot of accelerators do that for you. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. Hmm. So, um, wh- what do we think about, um, you know, have you had any, like, uh, you, you talked about some setbacks you had before, like, yeah. it, and, and where you had like these like down moments, um, what did you learn from it? Was there a specific one you're willing to talk about? And, and what did you learn from it? Yeah, sure. So um, basically we – so, okay, for car- carbon offsets, you, ha- you have to get them registered with these nonprofit carbon registries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like 75% of the offset volume goes through either Vera or Gold Standard. 
And our data partner has set has has already started the process of standing up a new methodology for storage in order to get storage mm. in order to get carbon offsets sourced from grid grid scale batteries like registered and verified. Um, but yeah, so I mean that's in process. It hasn't like closed yet, and we're trying to figure out what the timeline is. I mean, some some of these processes can take like one to two years, mm -hmm. and so I think they're probably like eight months in to this process so far. But there's some nuance to that that methodology that some of it maybe we want to change or we want to think about doing something in a different way and so that kind of like resets the clock right if we mm. want to mm. submit a new methodology now it's like okay gotta write it gotta submit it and then now we might be staring down like one to two years and so our original thought was like we might be able to find an innovator that's willing to do a deal before it's verified mm -hmm. right like mm -hmm. someone and, and this actually did happen so this this transaction has has happened one time between Meta and a company, actually a Houston-based company called Broadreach, which mm. is an energy storage mm -hmm, developer here mm -hmm. in town. And they did they did a deal of this nature. There's press release on it. You can go take a look. Um, and we were like, oh, great. So Meta did this without it being verified. So hopefully we'll be able yep. to find someone else or maybe even engage with Meta again um, on something similar. Kind of, we're trying to like make this a commodity that we can actually mm. like transact on a business and not just have it be like a one-off bilateral transaction. But then in recent months, basically, there's been a lot of heat on nature-based offsets. I don't know if you, mm -hmm. you've seen they've sold off quite a bit because of claims that they're like kind of bogus or they're over-minted and that mm -hmm. they're not real. They're not actually having the carbon impact that they're claiming. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of companies got this like, hey, you're greenwashing and got kind of mm -hmm. headline risk and, you know, blasted mm -hmm. in the news. And so what we're finding now is that really companies are like, no, we're not touching it. If it's not verified, we're not doing it. Yeah. And yeah. that landscape is, I mean, obviously we have no control over mm -hmm. kind of that narrative and the way that's gone down over the last year, but it has changed the way we're trying to approach the business. And if it means we can't get to revenue for one to two years, that's mm. really problematic. Like how do we yeah. leapfrog that? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. So that, you know, that's actually something we're currently going through right now. <laughs> it's a current, <laughs> like we're like whiteboarding like yesterday trying yeah. to figure out the situation. I think there is, you know, it's like finding creative ways around stuff like that where we can maybe we operate under a methodology that does exist in a and we kind of do it in a limited capacity or we try to de-risk the deal another way or maybe we keep trying to find those innovators who may be mm. willing to to um to do this deal on the merits of the like you know if we go through the vera mm. process and say hey like this is what vera would have us do here's all the proof it's just not yet doesn't have the mm. rubber stamp Mm. maybe someone is still willing to do that. But I think it's a lot of just discovering, like doing customer development, discovering mm -hmm. like what your customer risks your customer is willing to take on. So that's been a challenge. But I think there is ways around it. I'm not, I'm not, it's not like a hurdle that I don't, I don't think we can jump. I, I definitely think it's something we can work through. It's just been, you know, a little unfortunate that, you know, the headline risk is kind of coinciding exactly when we're trying to like make this new offset. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I guess the, and you have to have time to digest, but some of it is like, how do you change the strategy, right? Yeah. If it's, if it's not just about revenue today, well, it's still a big market. You got to educate and you want to build yeah. someone that, that light switch is ready to come on. Everyone knows to come to you and right. not someone else. Right. Right. And so yeah. there, there's still ways to build those barriers as you were talking about barriers, yeah. the, the moat around yourself. And right. sometimes the moat is your customer, right? If they're, yeah. if they're, yeah. they're attached to you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like what you're saying. I mean, you could figure out the solution to this problem, but then there'll be like other problems, right? Yeah. Like with the startup, it's yeah. it's a marathon and it's 
how do you maintain then it's all about maintaining that energy then and your commitment to what you're doing because there'll be other things that'll be propping up and you have to get back into the solution mode again oh yeah yeah i mean every time i talk to a founder they're mm -hmm. like yeah, there was a point where we were like, had no idea how we were going to get past this roadblock. Mm -hmm. And then we just, you know, figured it out or pivoted or whatever. And that's yeah. how we got here. And so I try to remind myself that, yeah, like, if it was easy, someone else would be doing it. You yeah. know, it's exactly. there's there are barriers that make it hard mm -hmm. to get this done. And we just have to figure out how to solve them. Mm -hmm. So try not to get like discouraged from stuff like that, I think. And a lot of times we'll find like a silver lining. Like we'll be like, oh, this barrier okay, how do we get over it? And we get over it and we're like, all right, great. Now it's a barrier for someone else to come <laughs> exactly. copy us. So now we know how to do it. Exactly. And we're going to see if we can yeah. use that to our advantage, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you you might solve it and you realize, huh, maybe that wasn't such a big barrier anyways. You know, yeah. it wasn't, it was something we were overthinking. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that yeah. happens too. Yeah. yeah. Is there something that you've learned about yourself on this journey as an entrepreneur that you didn't know before? Like, your strength or something that you don't like to do? Mm, well, I don't know if I learned this about myself, yeah. but I kind of knew this about myself going in. But I really, I don't love having like my calendar taken up by calls mm. and like meetings. And back when I was an individual contributor at Key Capture, I was like developing code <laughs> and like working on tra like trading, doing fun stuff. And then I became a director, became a manager, started managing a team of like 10, 15 people. And then my calendar was just like entirely meetings after that. I was like a manager. Mm. And I was a little worried coming into this that I was going to – it was going to be a lot of meetings and I wasn't going to have time to actually work on the product and do mm -hmm. like, technical development. But I lucked out and my co-founder loves doing that. <laughs> so I'm like, take all the meetings. So actually, it's been really good because mm -hmm. I've been – for the most part, had my calendar pretty free to be able to just do heads down work. And I really – Mm -hmm. I, I can sit down in front of a computer with some headphones on and crank for like nine hours. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. like – that's my jam. That's, so that's yeah. been a pleasant surprise, mm -hmm. I would say, about the founder journey. And yeah. of course, there are times where I, we have to jump on calls. But for the most part, yeah. Jacob's been handling yeah. the intake. Seems like you have the dream team. Mm. As a, definitely a <laughs> you, good yeah, combo. You, yeah, yeah, you complement each other. And that's what you need. That's right? you Sometimes need. Yeah. it's very natural that two people who are exactly the same end up starting a company because they have so much in common. Yeah. And that's when you start seeing issues because no one wants to do the the, the other work that they don't like to do, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or, or the issue is like everyone has like the same decision-making mm -hmm. area of authority and it's like, yeah, you can't get out of the consensus yeah. block that you create mm -hmm. for yourself. Echo chamber yeah. problem. Yeah. yeah. I will say that is definitely, we, we are, Jacob and I are very different, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. in pretty much every capacity in our mm -hmm. life. And if it, if I didn't know him, I would have been very hesitant to go into business with someone who's so different from me. Mm. But because we worked together before, like I knew that I work really well with him. Mm. And so I honestly think it's kind of like the best case scenario. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. if I was going to found a company with anyone, I'm glad it's Jacob. Yeah. Uh, you know, because part of it is like, I know a lot of folks have founded companies with friends, right? Mm. And not to say Jacob and I aren't friends, but we met working, right? And I think if you're best friends with your co-founder, you might feel like you can't push back on their ideas mm. or mm. say like, no, I need to veto this or like this is just we we got to think about this differently. Whereas with Jacob, we don't have that problem. Like mm. we, you know, we're, we're friends, we hang out, but like we don't have a problem giving each other pushback. Mm. And I think that's what you need. Like you just need constant, hey, have we validated that assumption or are you just like assuming that that's true? And then it's like, oh, yeah, I guess I'm assuming that it's true. Let's go validate it. Mm -hmm. And if you were just like, 
besties and you're like, yeah, that sounds great. You know, mm-hmm. maybe you could find yourself trapped by some of those. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, let's talk a little bit about Houston. We're like into our last 10 minute stretch here. So okay. I want to talk about that a little yeah. bit. So we talk about like what Rice has done to support you. Um, but are, are there other things outside of like the Rice ecosystem that you've been able to engage in? Um, please tell us a little bit about sure. that. Sure. Yeah. So um, the Women's Energy Network mm. is one that I have been engaged with. I actually mm. was on a podcast, the WEN podcast, mm-hmm. um, which I think is coming out in the next couple of weeks. Okay. Um, talking about batteries and mm. why we need them and have met some really cool people through WEN. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the Renewable Energy Alliance mm-hmm. um, came a call, has She's been like great. a huge supporter mm-hmm. of me. Yep. I'm so grateful for her. Yep. Honestly, she we met at like a random rice thing and she, I don't, I, we just kind of like hit it off and she has been a huge supporter of me since then. And so I, whenever she calls, it's like, hey, I need, you kind of, can you come speak on this thing? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been a really cool way to engage with um, storage folks, but also like wind yeah. and solar, mm-hmm. which I don't have any experience. Like it's kind of weird. Most people in storage usually come from renewables and then they get into storage. Mm-hmm. Whereas like I've never worked at a development shop for wind or solar. So I, don't have that experience. So that's been really good hmm. to talk with those folks because, I mean, that's like a huge part of transitioning the power grid. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I think between like community organizations that are like in renewable energy, it's been – it's a great ecosystem. I mean, Houston is definitely like leading the charge on like, – people love to like hate on Houston, right? Oh, oil and gas. Oh, it's hot there. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, uh, okay. It's, it's nice like nine months out of the year, eight yep. months out of the year and actually – Houston is probably one of the leaders, if not the leader, in the renewable energy transition. Yeah. So. I think we lean in. We're just mm-hmm. like, if you're going to hate on us for this, we're going to become the energy transition leaders. We're going to be the air conditioning you know, <laughs> capital of the world just because we're hot. So, you yeah. know, we're, we're going to take pride in some of that. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Do you have any favorite spots in Houston that you would want people to know about or not know about because they're your favorite? So, like, some, <laughs> some secret gems, you know? Things that, yeah, yeah, you like to do? Sure. Uh, well, mm-hmm. you know, I hang out at the Ion a bunch. That's mm-hmm. where I work out of. Mm-hmm. And I have found that to be quite the hub of innovation and just like really cool people working out of there. Um, do, do you actually pay for a common desk or do you go down and hang out with the like free section downstairs? I pay for a common desk, but yeah. the student membership is only $75 oh, a month. Which is like gen- genuinely, I don't know how they're, <laughs> it's highly subsidized, but um, yeah, it's definitely worth it. So yeah, there's a lot of folks I run into people I know. I run into my meet new people all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ION has been awesome. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of like, you know, what I do around town, I have to say, since I started school, it's been bare bones <laughs> extracurricular activities. But uh, my husband and I really like sushi. And there's a couple really cool sushi joints mm-hmm. around our house. There's a place in downtown called Kokoro. Mm-hmm. It's our favorite restaurant. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in Bravery Chef Hall. Uh, kind of off Market Square Park. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we're always checking out the sushi oh, places. Good. The new yeah, one comes I, I up. What, what's your favorite sushi place? Actually, I don't haven't found one here okay. yet because Nor, you know, Norway has really good sushi. Mm-hmm. That's where I was oh, the yeah. last ten years, and so we haven't found a really good one. So we have to try this one out. Yeah, I would say yeah. Kokoro and then Uchi. Uchi, Uchi. is like yeah. ten out of ten best. <laughs> It's also very close to our house, so it's a dangerous one. It's yeah. like we can walk to it. So this is going to tell you how like food snobby I am. So there's one yeah. called Hidden Omakase yeah, that we there. like. A, oh, it's yeah. like it's like hidden. But yeah. then B, um, don't look at the price. But oh, you should yeah. go. You should go once. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. It's like yeah. behind the comic book. 
or something like that. It's I don't even remember. You have to like sign up for it like a month ahead of time because it fills up and they only have 12 spots Mm. per night or something like that. But very Mm. good. Yep. But um Uchi's Uchi's fun. Uchi. I love sitting at the sushi bar over there. Yeah. And you get free sushi when you do that. So (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Because one of the things I've noticed if you're on the topic of sushi, (laughs) is that like, you know, in 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 Norway, we would mostly like eat the sashimi or just like the um yeah just the f- the fish right yeah. but here a lot of it's cooked and it's got sauces on it and like all these other things and all these other flavors and i'm like i can't taste the fish yeah mm. um so I, I don't know where to go where there's they're more kind of you know um minimalist flavors mm. so, so i think I, I read somewhere that the modern like sushi roll is an american invention yeah. where it's like mm. like all the baked stuff yeah. all the different flavors um and and that's why you don't see it in other yeah. parts of the world because yeah. it's a fusion mm. food from here mm. yeah mm. we're so. a big fan of just nigiri straight yeah. up yeah. yeah um uchi does a pretty good job with not like overwhelming the flavors mm. but i would say mf if you haven't been to mf they do like they're i would say more on the minimalist side okay. check check it out okay yeah museum district okay Nice. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> well, hot tips on where to get good sushi. <laughs> yeah. That's that's what this show is about. Uh, no, that's good. Um, are there are there any gaps in like the Houston ecosystem? You're like, oh, I wish I had this here, and I don't want to have to go to another city for it. Um, like gen- like in the cl- clean tech the space eco- or ecosystem. generally speaking, yeah, either or. Okay, well, I'm from the mountains. I grew up in Utah, and yeah. I. You know, it's pretty flat here. There's not a lot of outdoor activity. I grew up rock climbing and skiing. And um, so, yeah, I kind of miss Mm. nature. I I think nature is hard to, like, get Mm. into here. Um, It's too hot. It's too hot. And there's just not – it's just very flat. So we we escape for ski trips and hiking trips and stuff. Um, But I will say, caveat to that, Mm. Houston underrated two international airports. Like, Mm -hmm. very close to – you know, in town. And so I think it's like, I think Houston's a great place to live. I love mm. living here. Um, and even for its, you know, the things that it doesn't have, like this, the nature, the hiking, the outdoor stuff, it's like pretty easy to get to somewhere that yeah. does. You could but, drive to Austin. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so I guess as we're wrapping, mm-hmm. um, do you have any, anything that uh, the audience can do to help support you um, in your next steps? That's a good question. Um, yeah, so I think it's it's thinking about the pe- the clean energy transition in mm. terms of carbon and not necessarily in terms of renewable energy. Like that's the one thing I really want to mm. get people to start considering is that one megawatt of like renewable energy that comes from a solar farm in West Texas is not fungible to like mm-hmm. the load in New Jersey or the load, you know, your house turning a light bulb on in um in Houston. And so I really want people to start questioning the carbon content of their power mm-hmm. rather than just a su- saying, "Oh, I I bought a renewable electron and therefore I'm green." Mm-hmm. Um because if we keep that attitude with like renewable energy credits and just per- you know, purchasing renewable power and not considering how it actually gets to us, we'll never get the power grid transitioned. Yeah. And so I really think that it's important for folks to to go one step further beyond just how do we get renewable electrons on the grid, but how do we deliver them mm. to end use, you know, the mm. lights in here or, you know, your microwave or whatever, right? So um that's part of the education that I think we as a company need to do because it's kind of a new new way of thinking about things. 
Um, but I do think it's really important. And that that goes for individuals and companies and anyone who's like has a vested interest in mm-hmm. getting like transitioning us to net zero. I think that's going to be a critical key. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good note to mm-hmm. end on. I think a really important message because you're right. Most of us don't think about it that way. We think about, you know, well, we just need more solar and renewables and not about how the energy is actually getting to where it needs to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so aside from the ION, where do people find you on the internet? On the internet. Okay, <laughs> so we have a website. Um, TierraClimate.com okay. is our company website. And I also have a sort of – I've been honestly not tweeting as much as I used to, but I used to be like kind of bigger on energy Twitter. Um, my handle is Kinetic Energy. And I also have a website, nice. Kinetic Energy. Oh, yeah. you must Play on the last on name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Conet oh, with my yes. last name is K-O. Okay. So, you know. Um, but yeah, I have, I have a website. Um, and then I also have a LinkedIn blog and I write about a variety of things, sometimes storage and clean energy, sometimes just like what it's like to work at a startup or, mm-hmm. work, you know, my experience working at a bank, um, sometimes stuff that I learn in school. So hopefully people find that interesting. <laughs> um, there's a, there's like I have a couple hundred subscribers. So, yeah, that's kind of nice. my uh, online mm. footprint. So. Cool. All right. We'll find you there. Cool. Awesome. Thanks for being well, here. Well, thanks with us. so much for yeah. having me. This has Thank been so great. Much. I love yeah. the conversation. Good. Yeah. Thank you both.